0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Preserving Optionality edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. Uh, the title, by the way, is a uh, financial in joke that. Um, it's all to do with investment bankers, and investment bankers charge enormous fees for providing advice to companies. And the thing that they often do when they provide advice to companies is they, you know, check, cash their enormous check, and then they say, "I think what you should do is preserve optionality," which is a basically a very fancy way of saying do nothing at all. <laughs> yes. And so, if you want to, if you want to get paid lots of money for advising people to do absolutely nothing, you have to learn this phrase. Preserve optionality. It comes in surprisingly handy mm. in mm. many different um, contexts. I am Felix Ammon of Fusion. I am joined with the core slate money team. No last minute swap out. So Felix,
1: I wanted to call this episode the getting the band back together episode.
0: I think exactly. I can't remember the last time we were all in the slate studios together. It feels cozy. It is. It it feels cozy. Um, Kathy O'Neill yeah, you have a book coming out.
1: It's really exciting. It's four days from now. I'm just about to vomit with excitement.
2: I feel like next week. <laughs> that's, that's the best kind of excitement. The part that gives you like queasy,
1: bileless you, feeling in like, your stomach. I alternate between like like nausea and and ecstasy yeah.
0: so um so next week i think we're going to just devote the entire episode to kathy's book
1: that's if jordan can actually get to find time to read it i'm yeah. gonna
2: read the book oh have i been introduced? no this is how i'm being introduced i'm gonna <laughs> read the book
0: <laughs> i'm looking forward to it <laughs> um so but what is the book we need the official plug it's called
1: weapons of math destruction and you
0: will hear all about it next week um, and in case you hadn't noticed, there's there's a guy who's bad at reading books in the studio with us too, Mister Jordan Weisman. I I can I is good at read. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can read. He, he Jordan likes to read things on the internet which are short. If you give him something like which is bound, it, it starts becoming. It's just it's that Jordan crazy. is like, like one start.
1: of those like I'll wait till it's
2: urgent type of people. That's that's basically my life.
0: Um, <laughs> I am gonna we are gonna talk this week about shopping malls and a chain called Aeropostale, because I feel like we haven't done much tween fashion of late. Um, <laughs> Felix is wearing their summer line
2: right much now. Much needed gap. We
0: are, we are going to talk about the way in which it's actually possible to get more than half of your computer science class to be women, Amazing. believe it or not. But, and this is the big financial news of the week, I think. This is my favorite story of the week. We are going to start, Jordan, talking about tax havens and Ireland and Apple. Yes. So what is going on here?
2: So, yeah, uh, the EU's competition regulators, basically their antitrust regulators, uh, came down with a ruling this week saying that Apple uh, it needs to pay 13 billion euros in back taxes to Ireland, and the weird thing about this story is that Ireland isn't particularly happy about this. They don't really want those 13 billion euros well, in back taxes. The, the, the well, depending, Irish, who you yeah, talk depending to. on who you talk to, this is yeah. the
0: wonderful thing. So the Irish have made quite a cottage industry about uh, in, in attracting companies like Apple with very low ta- by, by dangling the carrot of very low tax rates in front of them. But now they're faced with this 14 billion dollar windfall. Yes, they're like. Really, I mean, this is a lot of money to just turn our nose up at. So the idea is they
1: they want the money. I mean, they're still not really. Well, I mean, okay, individuals in Ireland,
0: yeah, and some of the government, some like the Sinn Fein people were like the cabinet is split on this. Yeah, but the people who promised apple the low tax rate uh being doing the honorable thing and saying no 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 we promised them a low tax rate we have to we have to be true to our promise there's a great quote um where it's
2: so irish one of the ministers says we can't do this because it's going to give us a horrible reputation and companies are gonna be mad at us and we're gonna be this place that does funny business with taxes and we'll be quote eating the seed potatoes so irish (laughs) Irish. as an
1: irish person i'm like wow that's irish (laughs) i mean all i meant to say is like they want the money, but they also are afraid of what the consequences of taking yeah. the money are. Yeah, right?
0: so, well... Well, but but let's, let's go back first and... Talk about the details. Talk maybe? about, like, what this ruling is, because yeah. it's fascinating. This is basically the EU competition commissioner, as you say, doing its job and saying, we want a level playing field within Europe. And what you can't do is... It's basically allow companies to pay 0.005% of their revenue in taxes, because that means that you're just going to have this race to the bottom among companies just going to the lowest tax jurisdiction country rather than, you know, going to where the labor is best or anything like that. So they're saying it's unfair competition between Ireland and the rest of Europe rather than it's Illegal taxation. The the actual taxation was perfectly legal.
2: Well, so sort yeah. So there, I think there are two levels of what's kind of going on in Ireland, and it helps to have some context, right? So there's like normal tax avoidance, like everyday tax avoidance, where you try where this is what basically every company that is capable of doing it does, where you try to book your profits in a country where it just has a very low tax rate, right? Ireland has a 12.5% corporate tax rate. That's pretty low. It's pretty low. And so if you're a tech company, the name of the game is figuring out a way that you can theoretically book your profits in Ireland. Maybe one way you do that is you hand over your intellectual property to an Irish subsidiary. And then when you make money off that intellectual property, it gets booked in Ireland at a low rate. Or Or, the the
0: way that Apple did it is they created this company called Apple Sales International, which technically was the company which sold... Basically, every Apple product sold, not only in Europe, but all throughout the Middle East and North Africa. And okay. But, so, but, so, but, wait, but 12.5 so,
2: is a lot bigger than- Well, so that's what we're getting 0. to. So, 0. Then, so it's like you have this low tax rate, right? So that's normal tax avoidance. That's that's, And the EU isn't trying to regulate that. They're saying it's fine if you have a very low tax rate. But then there's this second level that was going on with Ireland. And basically, what this company, Apple Sales International, the subsidiary was doing, was it was booking all these profits, but then- and it was booking all the profits for Apple sales in Europe. It's a lot of money, and then it was saying, "Well, actually, those profits belong to something called our head office, and our head office doesn't actually exist anywhere. It's not in a country. It's just sort of an on paper office. It's an office in our imagination, um, and so it's and that head office doesn't have to pay Ireland's tax rate. And so okay, so let's, so, let's but, be clear about it. It yeah. wasn't.
0: It wasn't just. The fact that head office, well, head office was a kind of imaginary thing. Yeah. The stated reason why it didn't need to pay Ireland's tax rate was not that it was resident in the cloud or anything like that. The stated (laughs) reason was that ultimately Apple is an American company, which pays American taxes, and Apple is this American company owns all of the intellectual property. And as Tim Cook said in his very angry letter about this, we believe that taxes should be paid where the value was created, and quite obviously the value was created in the U.S. and not in Ireland, so we shouldn't be paying the taxes in Ireland. So
2: one way to describe this this head office was sort of a way station for this money that is theoretically going to go back to the U.S. maybe one day. And And this
0: is the bit which really kind of annoys me, which is that What happened in the wake of this ruling is that you got a bunch of people, including Jack Lew, the Treasury Secretary, Chuck Schumer, and, you know, a bunch of people who have been quite keen to bash Apple for keeping all of its profits offshore and not paying U.S. taxes, complain about this ruling, saying that it deprives the U.S. of its natural tax base. And Tim Cook is saying the same thing. He's like, no, 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 this tax should be paid in the US Which this they tax obviously. should should not be paid in Ireland and the thing which you just want to scream at all of them was, well, yes, it probably should be paid in the U.S., but you haven't been paying it in the U.S. You haven't been repatriating it to pay it in the U.S. And it's a bit late now to change your mind. Okay, this is the thing which... guys, guys, I
1: haven't said anything okay. so, okay. And so, and, yeah. and by the way, I have like 85 comments to make. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, so I agree with you, Felix. It yeah. seems extremely hypocritical of the United States because yeah. we've been doing all these things, and we've talked about them on the show before, to try to avoid these t- tax inversions but now we're like, oh, uh, if the European Commission is trying to uh, like avoid that kind of tax, unfair tax competition between countries, then that's not okay because somehow that's our money. Yeah, I don't understand that. Um, I guess. Th- but going back to the very beginning for a second, yeah. does the Euro- European Commission actually have jurisdiction? Can they do so, this?
2: So yeah, that's that's what's interesting here. I mean, Europe doesn't have one umbrella tax regulator, um, but it does have this comp- it does have an antitrust body, right? And they're basically saying that this deal that uh, that Apple got, this tax ruling Apple got, saying yeah, this head office move is kosher, um, was an illegal subsidy. And typically, the idea of stopping subsidies is um, you're supposed to not you know, give money to your like your big national car company or something like that. You're you're not supposed to subsidize. You're not uh, supposed to
1: pick and choose. Yeah, you're companies. not you're
2: not supposed to. You know, uh, but this time instead, what they're saying is, well, you're subsidizing these multinationals essentially, and that's unfair too because other companies that don't get that subsidy aren't playing on an even play, even field. Um, you're seeing sort of similar stuff happening with companies like uh, uh, like Starbucks and McDonald's and with things they do in Luxembourg, and there are actually thousands of smaller versions. of these deals all across Europe. and that's what has a lot of people kind of worried is that, you know, Apple is the biggest version of this and its deal is particularly is is a little bit different than some of the other ones. But there's the sense that, OK, Europe's going to try and crack down on these 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 super sweetheart deals. The thing you have to remember is they're not cracking down on just the super low tax rates that encourage a lot of the the garden variety tax avoidance that makes the right. you know, corporate the first world time go around. About it, yeah. This is a they are only dealing with one sort of extreme layer, one extreme version of this.
0: My, my the the angle which i'm fascinated by here though yeah. is the unbelievable amount of anger that you're getting not only from us politicians but also from apple because to read tim cook's letter and to read his interviews on you know irish television and that kind of thing you would believe that apple has been just dealt a body blow <laughs> yeah. by 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 the europeans and it's got 260 billion in so, so, so cash the thing, like, sitting around. well no so it's much it's much weirder than that the the first thing is that apple changed its entire structure in 2015 so nothing changes going forwards or nothing this doesn't affect apple's taxation right now at all mm-hmm. the other thing which is i don't think anyone's really picked up on and it's just astonishing to me is that this 13 sorry 14 billion dollar ruling from the EU saying, oh, Oi, Apple, you need to pay the Irish government $14 billion in back, ta- back taxes. How much do you think, Cathy, that that raises Apple's total tax liability?
1: I was just thinking, like, it's about 7% of the mo- amount of money they have just literally lying around, it's, right? Well,
0: the, the answer is that it raises Apple's total tax liability by zero. What? By absolutely zero. the because there's a dual taxation treaty between the U.S. Yeah. and Ireland, oh. if Apple pays those taxes in yeah. Ireland, it does not need to pay those taxes in the U.S. Now, it wasn't paying those taxes in the U.S. Yeah. either, anyway. But right now, on Apple's balance sheet, it has a twenty-four billion dollar tax liability so they should be to completely the U.S.
1: Neutral to it.
0: It's it is completely neutral to Apple's balance sheet. I mean, one hundred percent neutral. It does not affect Apple's balance sheet at all. Yeah,
2: it does. Circle back though to the fact of the matter that they were never planning to repatriate this money, and I, I well, I it, think I, like, I, I think that. they
0: were, and, and I think this is the real reason why Tim Cook is th- angry, is that when you have $24 billion that you owe the US and you're not paying the US, that is leverage. He had leverage over the US and he was making noises that he was going to start repatriating these things and start paying a lot more tax in the US. And he was sort of in quiet negotiations with the Americans about starting to pay all of these billions of dollars in taxes that they haven't been paying until now. And if Ireland goes and snaffles all of that money, then he loses that carrot in negotiations with the US. That's That's the main thing that he's losing here. the leverage is for
1: the tax holiday. Wait, when presumably. you say
2: negotiations, are you talking... Yeah, wait, are you talking about a temporary repatriation tax holiday? Is that what... What, what negotiations? That's my guess. Who knows? I yeah, mean, it could, be that, I mean
0: or it could just be, like, some other yeah. weird thing. Maybe he just wants the Justice Department to stop trying to break into iPhones. There's any number of things he could be asking for.
1: Here's why the U.S. should welcome this. The U.S. should welcome this because if Apple gets, gets screwed by European t- taxes, even after the fact then fewer people, fewer companies will pick up and move to Ireland in order to avoid taxes. Because they're I, like, see, I don't understand I, what's going to happen in the future, so I'll just stay here in the United States. I Isn't that, that the thing that we want
2: well, as Americans? Not, see, the reason I disagree with that is because you're still not addressing the fundamental issue. with It's still a really good deal to be in Ireland with that 12.5% tax rate. Um, this was... Make, what they're saying is Apple can't get an even better deal than that. They can still it's still worth most companies time to go and do the legal footwork you need to pay, you know, it makes one it less attractive. The, yeah, it does make it less attractive. And the but other I don't thing think I, it, I don't think the margin is enough to really make or break many. decisions. The
1: other thing I want to mention, which I know Felix is going to enjoy, is is a, a, an analogy to the EpiPen situation.
0: <laughs> it's like <laughs>
1: here's what Apple is really doing and like that imaginary thing that you were talking about yeah. um that imaginary home something the way station right so apple is basically like hiding behind having sort of patent protection going on in the United States and by the way political protection um obviously in the United States but it's getting its tax rates for Ireland. Yeah. Similar to the way that Mylan which is you know makes the EpiPen gets patent protection from the U.S., but it's actually tax base is in the Netherlands. Like these multinational corporations are picking and choosing what they want from each country. I mean, it's That's like- a really good point. It's That's like it. if I yeah. wanted to, if it's like if I wanted like the maternity leave in Scandinavia, but I wanted to have like, to be a, an entrepreneur in New York City. Like I can't do that as an individual. I have to choose a country to live in, but these multinationals get to literally get the best of each world.
0: Okay, so Kathy, yeah. since you've gone and done it, I did it. You've gone and brought up that word epipen.
1: I know you wanted to talk about are, that. Are and, we doing and, a part two? And so,
0: two? <laughs> so I've I'm now on the spur of the moment, unilaterally expanding this podcast from three topics to three and a half. <laughs> All <laughs> right, because I just want because we did get a, a bit of um, feedback on the on last week. Someone referring
2: to it as a drug, as opposed to when we device. when we
0: talked when we talked about epipen, and we talked about lots of interesting things oh. about epipen. But there is one big thing about epipen which we didn't. Talk about, and I think it's since we have Kathy here, and she loves to talk about EpiPen. I do. Um, the one thing which I, which we should just very briefly talk about is this thing, which is that yes, the EpiPen is a six hundred dollar device, but what you are paying for is not the drug. What you are paying for is the device. Yeah. The drug is out of patent, out of copyright. Anyone, it, you can buy it actually in any drugstore for like a buck fifty, and You can, you know, if you want to, if you go into anaphylactic shock and you have the drug which you picked up at the drugstore, you can, you know, put it into a syringe, inject it in yourself, and it does exactly the same thing that an EpiPen would do. The only thing, the the amazing thing is that Mylan has managed to patent a delivery device, not even a drug, and that somehow the FDA has managed to give Mylan a monopoly on Epiphrodrine del- you know, delivery devices rather than on the drug itself. And that every time someone else tries to come out into the market with a new delivery device, somehow they get shot down.
2: Well, there was, I mean, there's, there I wouldn't say every time. I, would have, I mean, the device itself is off patent. The There was one particularly important instance, Teva Pharmaceuticals, was going to come out with a generic EpiPen, essentially. And then for whatever reason, it's not clear, their device didn't work well enough and the FDA said no dice, and they can retry
0: in 2017. Basically, um, the reason yeah. I thought the stated reason—I thought honestly—the stated reason was that people are going to try to use this thing exactly the same way as you would an epipen, and in fact, you need to use it a slightly different way, and people might get confused and get it wrong because they're used to epipens. I haven't read the FDA, which, which way by over. the way, they,
1: they had to make it slightly different from the epipen, yeah. or else it would break t- patent. Yep. And this, this whole thing is a disgusting mess, and you know, I'm everyone's going to be like heaving. A sigh of relief when when the EpiPen like device finally leaves patent because like it's something that we all need like we shouldn't all be trained in using syringes. Well, right? that's the point.
2: The the device itself is I'm pretty sure off patent.
0: Jor- Jordan's right. I don't think the device is patented. I think that just what's happening is that mylan is getting astonishingly lucky, you might say, Um, or else it just has extremely good lobbyists at the FDA, um, in that whenever anyone tries to bring a competitor to the market, the FDA says, oh, not good enough. Oh, okay. And in fact, one of the reasons why MyLand raised the price so much in the first place was precisely because they expected all of these competitors to be coming around the corner. So they're like, we're going to try and get as much money as we can out of this market before this whole market dries up. And then, amazingly, wonderfully for them, like the market hasn't dried up because none of these competitors have been allowed, and and so there is, un, you know, underneath everything, this isn't really about drug patenting. It's not really about drugs at all. There does seem to be a story about the FDA's kind of cravenness and inability to um, allow new technology into the into the. I mean,
2: one one upside is that all the commotion about uh, what happened with the EpiPen will probably make them a little bit more likely to approve the next generic that comes out. Aside from, we keep on
1: thinking the FDA is going to improve overnight because of all these horrible things.
0: Well, yeah, the, the, the the FDA never does anything overnight. <laughs> anyway, that we that we only have half a segment right. for, for EpiPen, so we're going to end EpiPen there. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery. <laughs> And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more Wondery Means Business. And, and now, Kathy, yeah. you have some good news for us. I do.
1: I'm going to be upbeat today, guys. Is that okay with everyone? Yeah. So, here's the bad news. <laughs> 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 the bad news is the undergraduates who are getting degrees in computer science uh, in the United States is are almost all men. They're like there's like 16, maybe 18 percent women, and it's been really, really flat for the last few few decades. I mean, in fact, it's gone down a little bit and then it went up a little bit, but it's really quite flat. It's always been less than 20 percent. Um, so the question is, why is that?
0: Why is that, Kathy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, the, there's there's a bunch of different theories. Um, and one of the newer newest theories is that it's just because they're teaching it badly.
0: The universities?
1: The universities. They're teaching poorly.
0: And then somehow the women who are applying or not applying for computer science degrees can sense that on their tour of campus and they they kind of can smell the bad teaching and so they don't even apply for their program to begin with.
1: Well, I mean, possibly, but I mean, that's actually, you know, let me put it this way. like, There's 49% of the MIT undergraduates are now women. It's not like that women aren't going to technical universities, right? Um, it's just that they're avoiding the computer science major. And so the question, and, and Harvey Mudd is, is, was in the news this week.
0: Are you finally getting to the good news? I am.
1: The good news is great. It's really, really exciting. I'm I have to tell you, this is something that's been bothering me my entire life as a math nerd woman because it's the same same situation in math. And I still, anyway, here's the good news: Harvey Mudd, which uh, which had less than ten percent, like lower than the national average in two thousand seven, now has now has fifty five percent female computer science majors. They've like absolutely turned the ship around, and they are super friendly to women. And those women are going on to getting really good technical technology so, jobs. So,
0: so tell us what what does a female-friendly computer science department look like?
1: Okay. So what they've done is they've hired a lot more women in, throughout the entire university. The the president is a woman. That might help. I'm not sure what exactly helps. I'm going to tell you what they've done, what they've talked about. I think the most important thing probably is the way they start the undergraduate um, curriculum. They have a required um, programming course. This is Harvey Mudd. It's very nerdy.
0: So this is, so this is for... Every single undergraduate in the entire university has yeah. to take a programming class.
1: Carby Mudd is like the MIT of the Claremont Colleges, you know, down in Southern California. Um, it's not Caltech, but it's, you know, it's it's like that. What they do is they have...
0: So it's not a liberal arts college? Not at all. No, they're, they okay. They come.
2: They do very well on uh, salary uh, surveys because they have so many engineering grads. It, it's they're basically those... an
1: engineering school. Yeah. So what they've done is they've, uh, they've required everyone to take a, cl- a computer class, but not just any computer class, it's a Python class... Python is my favorite language. It's a very, very friendly language. It's almost like pseudocode. If you read it, it's like very friendly. Um, and they have three tracks. And I think this is the most important aspect of it. Three tracks. Um, so you get to choose which which um, track to go into. But the, the most important one is the one that doesn't require any prior computer science. And you can be a, a, a CS major even if you start there. So... The reason I I mentioned this as important is that I actually I've been talking to um, this group at Columbia called Color Code, which is like a a group of undergrad CS majors who are concerned that the computer science major at Columbia, ah, uh, you know, is uh, sort of unfairly discriminates against minorities and women, um, and you know, I, and I I I live near Columbia, so I don't want to like rule it as I don't want to like point it out as like the worst performing in any sense of the word, but they do things. Uh, in the computer science major at Columbia, that are that are really not helpful for people, and the number one complaint is that you know they it's a it's a weeder course, like the first undergraduate CS major course, is a weeder course that very much um a, a p- appeals to people who have already been programming for so, like ten so years. When
0: you say a weeder course, what you mean is a lot of people take it and not. Most people don't even finish it. It sounds
2: like the equivalent of organic chemistry or something
0: to weed out pre-med bio- yeah. majors. That so kind of
2: the
1: thing. quote I was told by one of the... One
0: so of the, well, First of all, can you just tell me what is a weed? Yeah, Yeah, somebody...
1: It. Yes, but the quote I was told was the very first day, the professor, who's actually a nice guy, said to the class, half of y'all won't make it. Yeah. Literally, like, we are intended to get rid of half of you. Yeah. And the point is, if you say that to people, the people that feel like they're the least prepared are going to be like, they have a sign on their face, like, I will not succeed. And it really, it really happens.
0: And And so what happens to those people who drop out of the class? They just wind up with a second rate, you know, pure mathematics degree. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Not necessarily. Uh, so there's actually been some research on this, and and what happens to the women and minorities who get weeded out, and uh, it's they they a lot of them go into like liberal arts and just easier majors. Um, yeah, yeah, This is they they a lot of them get discouraged from the idea of doing science at all because they are a little bit more sensitive to failure than dudes. Yeah, there dudes is, have no it is absolutely of a
1: sensitivity to failure. And it's not just men, uh, yeah. women that are sensitive. to it. Some men are too. But yeah. the point is that it's statistically much harsher yeah. for the people who are who haven't had a lot of success already. Yeah. So there is one class at Columbia, as I understand it, that you can take if you have no experience in computer science, but you can't then go on to be a computer science major, because there's just not enough time. So it's all I'm saying is, is a design. There's a designed curriculum. It happens at Harvey Mudd. They're, they're expanding it to other colleges. That really works. Now, the bad news about this new design is that it's expensive. It takes more resources. And I, I know people at MIT doing this as well in mathematics and statistics. It, they flip the cl- course, the, the classroom. They have more teachers. They have group work. It's very interactive. It takes more resources. So that's going to be a problem for places that aren't, you know, small, f- really, really expensive schools. Like Harvey Mudd costs $72,000 a much? year. How much? 72000 a year. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and but, MIT's expensive too. So you, it's, you
2: probably make it back. I mean, yeah, they probably also give some decent financial aid. I mean, Harvey Mudd, grads, Harvey Mudd grads make bank. Um, that's that's one thing yeah, that- but everyone,
0: Yeah, but $72,000 a year for four years is, I believe the technical term is a shit ton of money. That's true. I
2: don't think many people, I, I, I would assume a good percentage of people are not actually- Paying that that sticker price, but nonetheless, it is expensive.
1: When I say seventy two thousand, I should mention that that's like tuition plus everything else, like living there. Still and a, lot, like, a yeah.
2: lot of money. It's a lot of money, but I, I do think <laughs> seventy two is the one I worry about as a parent. I do right? wonder though, like what the, the marginal cost to the, the to like tuition overall, how bad that could really be for implementing something like this in what is one of the most essential majors for any. You know, you know here is the thing,
1: like, and not to again, not to rag on Columbia too much, but like the thing about Columbia is that it's their most popular. Major major and NYU. Is really now? Yes. I didn't realize that. And NYU is like one of the top three majors. And like
0: on Stanford is definitely
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Stanford by the way is doing quite well with women too. They have thirty percent women. I mean that's better than average. Um so they have all these people that want to be CS majors and you're reading them out. Like why? You'd think that they would if and and this is like something I complain about a lot but if you think if the if the academic world responded like a business
0: responded they would go oh my god we have all of this demand we should create more computer science graduates exactly
1: <laughs> why not why don't we expand the computer science department so that it has all kinds of different it's not yeah.
0: like teaching computer science is vastly more expensive than teaching anything else no, that's true and actually I
2: want to no. I want to jump on this too uh, just elaborating on why it makes no sense because the idea of a weeder course really uh, very much comes from pre med i mean that's a, that's a huge part of it. and it makes sense in pre-med because there are only so many spots in medical schools not everyone who finishes pre-med will even get accepted exactly so you need to weed kids out of that because otherwise you're just gonna have a lot of people who are suddenly faced with well you don't have to but it, at least there there's a rationale computer science there is you know n- there is no surplus of computer science grads from top universities right now right if you can produce more of those that's good for everybody there's no there's no it there's
0: no at need There's to. There's no Unless, yeah.
1: natural limit to yeah. the number of CS majors we want to see. Yes.
0: So, so all you schools out there teaching computer science, which is probably every school out there, I mean, realistically, um, stop dissuading people, and especially women, from studying computer science and don't weed people out. And the more computer science graduates that America has, the better we will be at making America great again. <laughs> the better we will be at... <laughs> wow. Okay. Um...
2: rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com.
0: It's fashion time here on Slate Money.
1: It's always fashion time with you, Felix. It's
0: always fashion time with me. <laughs> I'm I'm literally wearing my father-in-law's um shirt right now. It's nice. Um so It's
2: very Tiki Bar. I I there's there's like some multi-colored palm fronds in blue, purple, and it's, green. It's there's nice. there's a lot going on here.
0: I did not buy it at a shopping mall. And in this, I am... <laughs> do shopping malls still exist? Quite, this is a very good question. Okay. It at turns the, out that yeah, shopping malls <laughs> real do, do still exist. But, you know, the modern people... I, we, we, we try not to use the M-word on this show. The snake people, they have more or less given up on going to shopping malls because it's a miserable experience. Who wants to, you know, walk around and antiseptic air conditioned bunch of shops for hours and end i've never understood the appeal of this but now it turns out there's a whole generation of americans who don't understand the appeal of this and what they're doing is they're not going to the mall
1: i used to have this thing when i went to malls because that was what what people did when i was a teenager (laughs) where like if like 20 minutes in i had some kind of like feeling of i called it the mall coma like i just (laughs) i couldn't breathe i couldn't think i just ended up at friendlies eating like peppermint stick ice
2: (laughs) i used to Spend a ton of time at malls when i was a kid i'd go to the arcades and anyway this is tangential <laughs> to i just say there is there there is a certain appeal to just being inundated with retail and, things and now
1: people do. just go on the internet yeah. like so
2: why? also if you have to have a car to get places it's a central meeting place where everyone can just kind of hang out and do whatever there's there's a logic to it but now it's lost its appeal and it malls has lost its so well. appeal
0: partly because you know the kids these days are less likely to have cars the result of this is that a bunch of companies which were built on having Hundreds, or in some cases, over a thousand different outlets in malls across the country are doing quite badly. Um, this company called Wet Seal went bust. This company called Pacific Sunwear went bust, and then this company called Aeropostal went bust.
1: Is anyone crying for that? Any of them
0: no, no, really, no one is crying. <laughs> like I feel like the bankruptcy of Aeropostal is probably bad for the equity holders of Aeropostal, yeah, but okay. you know, no. you can. We we I'm sure they'll be fine. Um, in the grand scheme of things, so what's interesting to me about this story is that there was a bankruptcy auction for the assets of Aeropostale, and it was won with a bid of two hundred and forty three point three million dollars by a consortium, which is led by, get this, Simon Property Group and General Growth, which are the two biggest mall operators, basically. Hmm. So what happened is that these mall operators looked at Aeropostale and said, "You have 800 stores open. We're going to buy you. We're going to actually keep open. I think 229 of those stores, which is a good outcome, as well as doing the e-commerce and the brand licensing and all of that kind of stuff. And those 229 stores are going to keep on paying rent, and they and because they're in the mall, they're going to." Attract people who want to shop at Erika Style. And they get a bunch of, of benefit from having those stores open, which is above and beyond what any other owner. Of Aeropostale could have, and so what you have is the landlord basically buying the business in order to keep the business open, and I, I find that a fascinating story.
2: Isn't that just sad? Yeah, I was going to say that's how <laughs> desperate they are. The entire point of operating a mall is that you do not have to own the stores. Yeah, that's <laughs> <like, laughs> the entire. That is why you started a mall it's
1: like a free instead market of opening on a store. tenants. Yeah.
0: Okay, um, but now um, <laughs> because I'm Felix Salmon, I'm going to tie this into sovereign debt. <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about optionality, but let's hear about
2: Argentina. Okay, Okay.
0: let's do it. This is this is this is so Aeropostale in this metaphor is Argentina. Okay. (laughs) Um, So you will remember, as I you know vividly as I do, the um, sovereign debt crisis of 1998, and what happened was that Russia defaulted on its debt. There was a massive repercussion around the world markets crashed in every single market around the world for weeks and weeks it was devastating spreads on emerging market debt around the world gapped out and this is on a relatively small default of not very many just domestic bonds not even the international bonds by Russia in 98 and then what happened a few years later in 2002 is that Argentina had a much much larger default on its debt. It was like over $100 billion. It was enormous. It was, And Argentina was much more connected to Wall Street and to the markets and to Latin America and to the you know emerging markets than Russia ever was. Um, it had a much bigger GDP and so on and so forth. And the repercussions of the Argentine default were basically bupkis. Nothing happened. There was no crash. There was no contagion. I mean, there was a little bit of contagion before the default in Brazil, but then after the default, nothing happened.
1: So, who are mm-hmm. the landlords here?
0: I'm so lost. The, the metaphor, which I'm painfully drawing here, <laughs> is, is that, well, Argentina was described as the slowest train crash in history. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone saw it coming. Mm-hmm. Um, my, the, what I'm trying to say here is that slow moving train crashes are much less harmful. Mm, what I so what I'm saying collateral damage. What I'm saying is that what Simon Property and, and General Growth they're not in Eric style for the long haul. They're not buying the equity because they want to own it in fifty years and they think oh. it's some wonderful, great long term investment. What they're doing is they're softening the blow. They're putting foam on the runway. I was
1: going to say foam on the runway. Foam
0: on the runway. And what they're what they're doing is they're saying we can keep these stores open until the point at which we can find a better tenant to take over that store. And then we can just, you know, close down that store, replace it with a better tenant rather than just having an empty store yep. and have to scramble around to try and find a tenant for the empty store.
1: Or until like malls die officially.
0: Until malls die officially. So they have, it Look, it makes them better in the short term and it makes their cash flow a little bit more certain. They get to continue, you know, getting the rents and they slow down the train crash. And if you slow down the train crash, that's good not only for the mall operators, but it's actually good for all the people who work at Aeropostale as well.
2: You know, this also makes me think about this issue of Keeping storefronts full, right? That being necessary, like just avoiding blight in a mall, you know, it makes me think that there's probably some contagion amongst these company, all of these companies that rely on mall sales, right? Like if one goes out of business and the storefronts start going empty, like sh- you know, strawberry down the bl- or like Forever Twenty One, <laughs> a few doors down, is hot also topic. is also going to be a hot topic. Is going to be in trouble, and so I wonder if there's like an index that you could like you could create an index you could short then of all these mall companies as one goes, the others are going to fall. It's well.
1: Cinnabon. The Cinnabon Index.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Cinnabon would totally Cinnabon. be on there. <laughs>
1: totally. Cinnabon is the nexus, man. People They're... go, people get addicted to Cinnabons, and that's not why they go to the mall. I lied when I said I didn't know what malls are for.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, if you have ever been to a mall, do write to us. It's late money at slate.com because we have no idea what we're talking about. I feel that it's time for a numbers round because we need to, you know, we we've already squeezed three and a half topics into yeah it's this time thing. let's do it okay so my jordan number. what's your number you're
2: looking at me like you're expecting a number i am uh, expecting a number not jordan yeah i so, hope you have a number yeah so my number is 68 which is the percentage of americans who at some point in their lives uh won't pay any federal income taxes um there is a uh you know, there's the famous forty-seven percent number, right? During the two thousand twelve, we all learned there were forty-seven percent of Americans who don't pay federal income taxes, and those were the takers. And Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney were running for the makers. Um, the thing about those sorts of stats, and, and it's useful to think about uh, this with like poverty statistics too, anything that tells you about how many rich or poor people are in this country, is that they don't really give you the full picture because people's incomes change over their lifetime. Some people are going to be poor for ever some people be poor for a month people go in and out of it same with this tax status it turns out that over the course of lifetimes more than two-thirds of americans will at some point be among the quote takers well, um does this that is include, after their kids yeah does this include like when you're in college uh yeah i mean it's in it's in lifetime at some point i have to
0: Double check about.
1: I mean, no how child many... pays taxes. So it's yeah, well, no, be, these, are,
0: these and, to... and yeah, college these are students tend not to pay taxes. And when you're in jail, you don't pay taxes. And, and... and there's lots of reasons why. Or when yeah. you're retired, let's you just know.
1: say when you otherwise might be paying taxes. Yeah, two thirds of the <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. but it is true that these things are highly variable. And but you know the other thing is that. You can afford to not pay taxes if you have wealth. Like, if you have a wealth cushion and you have a year of very low income, you're like, okay, I'll just spend down my wealth. It's less harmful to you than if you don't have any wealth. So, you know... Just because you're not paying taxes doesn't mean you're poor, necessarily.
2: That is true. Just Typically, ask Donald Trump. Yes. Sorry, we're not allowed to use that word. <laughs> was, I was going to say... I, I broke get, my rule. If I had done that, I'd be getting... Just, I would be, Jordan, I would did be you notice that I broke
1: you. that rule last yeah. time? Did you?
2: Uh, you were away. You didn't, you didn't listen. Yeah, anyway. I'd be getting reamed right now.
0: Anyways. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I, I have a number, which is a birthday number. Um, I would like to take this opportunity to wish a happy 40th birthday to Vanguard. Oh. Um, They're 40 years old this week, and happy birthday, Vanguard. And there was this attempt to try and work out how much money Vanguard had saved people over the years. And so that's my number. It's $515 billion. On fees, Which is made up of... $175 $175 billion in fees. That is, the Vanguard fees are much lower than you would otherwise have paid. So that savings is about $175 billion. It's, and then there's another $140 billion in trading costs because mm. Vanguard doesn't trade as often as most other um, They're passive investing. you can you yeah. You yeah. money.
1: Isn't it kind of Marxist of you to talk
0: about? I, I'm totally Marxist <laughs> on this. And then they've added on another $200 billion in lower fees from everyone else because they're having to compete with Vanguard. Um, And that adds up to $515 billion. And then, of course, you can sort of extrapolate it forwards and say that in a few years' time, it's probably going to reach a trillion. Vanguard has saved Americans an absolutely astonishing amount of money. And you can quibble with whether that's actually true because it does look like Wall Street and the buy side seems to be doing quite okay for itself these days and and that, you know, it's not exactly in the poorhouse. But it is clearly a force for good in the world. So happy birthday, Vanguard.
1: All right. My number is sixty one. Um, it's a really good number. i as I said, I was gonna be positive today. In the United States in the past twenty five years, the teen birth rate has declined by sixty one percent nationwide. Yep. Mm-hmm. that's astounding and wonderful and, there, and no
0: one knows why I, no,
1: no everybody knows why yeah. the answer is they're having just as much sex god bless their hearts um but they're using contraception yep. thank you thank you contraception people
2: yep that's there was this used to be more of a debate there were like people saying oh it's like a cultural thing but there were some studies recently that
0: finally are just like no it's contraception it's oh can
1: I just add in like a another <laughs>
0: number yeah why not have another, an ex- we're like having little... an extra but if we can have three and a half segments we can have three and a half numbers half well. number What's your half zero number? That's, that counts as a half number. how
1: much tax there are how much taxes there are on tampons and maxi pads in new york state now woohoo Officially Congratulations. you did it you did it
0: yes. we can uh, so write into slate money at slate.com and say thank you kathy for the fact that I no longer need to pay tax and on if you my do, tampons in New York State.
1: If you do get charged taxes, please take a picture of your bill, email and it. Hashtag tweet the receipt. Oh, that too.
0: What's the What's the hashtag?
1: Hashtag tweet the receipt.
0: Tweet, tweet the, the receipt. receipt. Okay, <laughs> Kathy O'Neill, change maker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so on on which happy note we will wrap up this edition of Slate Money. We will come back next week talking all about weapons of math destruction because I can attest that Cathy has written a fantastic book. Jordan may or may not be able to have an opinion on the book, but <laughs> it's gonna be read. It's gonna the book will have been read by me <laughs> by right. the time we um, record. So yeah, it just Falls to me to thank Zach Dynastine for producing this show and Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, the executive producers, and to point you to itunes.com slash panoply, where you can find all of the panoply podcasts. And we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money.